0: Good afternoon, everyone. Is anybody excited? Like I could barely sleep last night. So I let you know that I'm excited. I hope this work. It's working. Praise God. Okay. Well. Our message um, today uh, is the Blueprint Part 3, but it, it is subtitled, Earth's Final Movie. Earth's Final Movie. And what we are going to do is we are going to juice the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Focusing on the theme of the great controversy. Are you ready? Do you know what we're going to cover? We're going to cover everything. Um, I mentioned yesterday we will be covering today the sanctuary, the fall of Lucifer from heaven. We'll be covering the 2300-day prophecy, the 70-week prophecy, the 1260-year prophecy. We'll be covering the mark of the beast. We'll be covering the millennium we'll be covering a lot. You're already thinking, I'm going to be here for like three hours. (laughs) But what's the key word? Juiced. (laughs) All right? Um, Let me explain again why we are doing this. Because when you desire to put together a puzzle, you first must start with understanding the whole picture. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at that big picture so that when the puzzle is broken down into pieces, we know what pieces go where. Amen? Do you have your notepads? Is your, are your hands ready to write? You're probably going to be writing profusely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, speak to us now. Help us, Lord. Lord to sit up, pay attention, and understand the greatest drama of the ages. Thank you, Lord, for what you will do. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Right. so for those of you who have been here um, over the past couple of days... What we're going to do is, I I was uh, kind of giving you pieces of the puzzle, taking you a little step, uh, taking you to a certain uh, step, and then we went a little bit further. What we're going to do today is we're going to start from the very beginning, and for those of you who are here, you're going to be able to help me, amen? That amen didn't sound convincing. You're going to be able to help me, because you have seen part of the movie, Amen? amen? All right, so let's begin. Where do we go first? We're going to Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel chapter 28, and we're gonna go through this very quickly. Ezekiel chapter 28. In Ezekiel 28, we read there in verse 14 about Lucifer. The Bible says there, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created, till iniquity was found in thee. In order to discover what a covering cherub was, where do we go? We go to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus chapter 25, we find there that Luke, that uh, uh, God had given the children of Israel a miniature model of the throne of God. It was in something called the sanctuary, and this sanctuary we understand to be the blueprint. In this sanctuary was what was called the most holy place, and in the most holy place, what was there? There was something called the Ark of the covenant, and inside the ark was the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and above the ark was something called the what? Mercy seat. And on either side of the mercy seat, there were two angels called what? Cherubs. What was the job of each of these cherubs? They were to cover, but the word cover means to what? defend or protect. Lucifer, therefore, was one of the two angels that stood in the very presence of God. Very good. What was Lucifer's job in heaven? He was protecting or covering or to be defending the very foundation of the throne of God, and that foundation would be what? The law of God. How do we know that? Because the mercy seat sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant, wherein is the law of God. You get that? So from that blueprint, we look at the blueprint and we learn a lesson. Oh, the foundation of God's throne is his what? His law. Lucifer, who was to be uh, uh, guarding the very foundation of God's throne, the Bible says what was found in him? Iniquity. Now, what is iniquity according to 1 John chapter 3, verse 4? Transgression of the law. So Lucifer, who was supposed to be guarding the law, eventually does what? Turns against the law. How does he end up deceiving one-third of angels? The Bible says in Revelation 12, verses 7-9, through that there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought, and they were cast out of heaven. Why was there war in heaven? Because Lucifer turned against the law of God, and it split the church where? In heaven. Are you with me so far? Are you catching the movie? The drama. Okay, how is it that Lucifer was able to deceive one-third of holy, intelligent angels? Go with me to the book of Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, you'll remember that we read there Isaiah chapter 14... Beginning with verse 13, you'll remember that the Bible speaking of Lucifer, uh, 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 Lucifer speaking here says this, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will do what? Ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will, uh, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be what? Like the most high. Now, what is the most high like? Holy, sinless, good, righteous, all those things. What was Lucifer then saying? Lucifer was not saying to the angels, hey, angels, I want to be evil. Who would like to come with me? That would not have been deception. Lucifer's argument was I can be righteous and holy and just like God without God dictating that to me through a law. We don't need a law in order to be righteous. So Lucifer's argument then was an argument of what we would call self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And this is what deceived one-third of angels. Because Lucifer, again, didn't say, I want to be evil. He was just saying, look, there are other ways to being righteous other than what God has said. There are other ways to being holy. We are already naturally holy and we don't need a law. Does that argument sound familiar today? Are Christians promoting that argument today? Of course, we don't need a law to be just like Jesus. We're under grace. We can be like Jesus without some law telling us how to do it. And so we we progress in our storyline because we see that there was war in heaven. The devil and his angels are cast out, but they are not destroyed. They are not judged. And the question is, why are they not judged? Where do we go for our answer? What book? Come on. Okay, I'll help you. We're going to go to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19. Deuteronomy 19, verse 16 through 19 lays out a principle. Here's what it says it says, "If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges which shall be in those days and the judges shall make diligent inquisition and behold, if the witness be a false witness and has testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he thought to have done unto his brother what is the principle here? God lays out this principle that if controversy rises between Two parties, there must be a what? A third party to discern or decide between the two. Why is that fair? It is fair because uh, if two people have a controversy, one cannot be the judge over the other. Does that make sense? So take this principle back to heaven. When the devil and his angels rebelled against God and his angels, how many sides were there? Two sides. There was no third party. But God tells Lucifer, Lucifer, I'm going to lay you before kings. That's Ezekiel 28. I'm going to lay you before kings that they may behold you. You're going to be judged. And Lucifer scratching his head going, who are you going to get to judge me, God? Don't you know that all the universe is polarized into two sides? But God had a creation in store. Who would be the kings that would ultimately judge Lucifer? Humanity. God creates Adam and Eve as kings. He gives them dominion over the world. In other words, beloved, humanity is to serve as the jury in this trial. Are you with me? God called humanity into existence for at least one reason, to serve as the jury. Now, what were the three characteristics we learned about jury selection? When a jury is selected, uh, they will choose a person that has very little knowledge of the crime, that wasn't there during the time. Where was humanity when Satan rebelled in heaven? Nowhere. Nowhere to be found. They weren't even created. Number two, a juror must be a, what everyone? Law-abiding citizen. God creates Adam and Eve with the law written on their hearts. Number three, a juror must be able to discern between what? Right and wrong, and must not be swayed by public opinion. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3 says, Know ye not that the saints shall do what? Judge the world. And then it goes on to say, know you not that we shall judge angels? God created us. One of the reasons is to judge these fallen angels. So Lucifer, he sees Adam and Eve and he goes, wow, are these the ones that are supposed to judge me? Hmm. Now, let me ask you something. If you were a criminal on trial and you knew that you had access to a jury that was to judge you, what would you try to do to the jury? Bribe the jury. And guess what Lucifer does with Adam and Eve? He bribes the jury. He says, you can be like gods, knowing good and evil. That word gods may also be translated as judges. You want to be a real good judge? Eve, you want to be a real good judge? Eat from this tree. Then you'll really know the difference between good and evil. Did Eve know the difference between good and evil? Did she know the difference between good and evil? Of course she did. The devil lured her with something she already had. God already told her, this is good, this is not good, don't eat of it. So notice what happens. Adam eats from the tree. I'm sorry, Eve eats from the tree. She takes it to Adam. He eats from the tree. And what happens to the jury? They have disqualified themselves. And the devil sits back. God, are these the ones? Or or were you serious? Were these the ones you were going to use to judge me? Is God defeated? No, because he comes to the garden and he gives man a promise that he's going to send a Messiah. So then we begin to understand that the entire purpose of the gospel is to restore mankind to being what? Law abiding citizens of the kingdom of heaven with the ability to do what? Discern between right and wrong. And to not be swayed by public opinion. This is the purpose of the gospel. Why? Because God will have a jury ready for the trial. Amen? The devil doesn't want you to know who you are. He doesn't want you to know that you're a juror. So he has you walking around saying things like, I don't see anything wrong with He's got you walking around being a lawbreaker, whatever he can do to disqualify you from being a juror. So we're going to fast forward a little bit, and we now come down to the book of Exodus. And in the book of Exodus, what we find is in Exodus 25, God says to the children of Israel, let them make me a what? Sanctuary that I might do what? Dwell among them. Now, why is God giving Israel this sanctuary? Here is the answer, because the sanctuary is a blueprint of the plan of salvation. Imagine with me, if you will, the devil is like, ah, this earth is my territory. I own the whole thing. And all of a sudden, there drops this thing on earth called the sanctuary. And the devil's going, wait a minute. That's a replica of the place that I left in heaven. What is that thing doing here? Wait a minute, wait a minute. If they get a hold of that thing, why, if they study that thing out, are you with me? And so, God is giving to man this blueprint of the plan of salvation in this sanctuary, in this special little building, contains the blueprint for the salvation of all humanity. How do you think the devil feels about that blueprint? In that blueprint is explained the fall of Lucifer from heaven. It reveals him for who he was, a covering cherub who was to be defending the law of God, but turned away from it. It reveals the the origin of sin and the result of sin. And so now we begin to see that the conflict in the Old Testament is that the devil wants to destroy what? What? The blueprint and the people that possess the blueprint. What does God want to do? God wants to use Israel to take that blueprint of the plan of salvation to where? The whole world. So we're forwarding our way through the old testament because now we understand that all the all the stories of the old testament revolve around the children of israel getting set up in the promised land so they so that they could build a proper temple so that when jesus comes the reception of Je- the, the the plan of salvation could be made known to all the world but what ends up happening with israel they begin to rebel against god is that right and as they are rebelling against God, God is sending prophet after prophet, warning them, listen, remember what I've called you for. I've given you this sanctuary to be a blueprint of the plan of salvation to the whole world. And I'm calling you to live according to the, to the principles found in that sanctuary blueprint. But the children of Israel began to turn away from the principles of righteousness. And as a result, what happens? They are taken into captivity And their temple is what? Is destroyed. They are in Babylonian captivity. A prophecy comes. It's our first of three major time prophecies in the Bible. It is a prophecy of the 70 weeks. What does God tell Israel in that prophecy? He says, listen. Israel... I'm about to let you go back to your city. And I'm also going to allow you to rebuild the temple. But I want to let you know that in a certain time period, and what would that time period be? 70 weeks or what? 490 years. In that time period, I want you to know that the Messiah is coming. If you mess up again, remember our analogy yesterday? We said, imagine the sanctuary as a football. And God says, I'm giving you the football. Your job is to take it down the field. If you fumble the ball. It's not going to be pretty. (laughs) So Israel is supposed to be looking for the Messiah who's supposed to be coming in 70 weeks. And guess what happens at the end of the 70 weeks? By the way, now you understand what the 70 week prophecy is all about. It's God telling Israel, listen, I'm giving you a heads up. Be prepared for the very reason I've called you into existence so that this understanding of the blueprint of the sanctuary can be taken into all the world. Jesus comes on the scene. What does Israel do? They fumble the ball. They reject Jesus Christ. And as a result of them rejecting Jesus Christ, something happens. The ball is fumbled. God takes up that ball and says, Israel, you no longer have the blueprint." I am now giving the blueprint to a new people. Are you with me? The 70-week prophecy is basically God taking the sanctuary out of the hands of literal Israel and putting it into the hands of spiritual Israel. Not only does that happen, but it's no longer the same sanctuary. Now, instead of it being a earthly temple... It is a what? A heavenly temple given to a spiritual people. Are you with me? So the 70 week prophecy is this transition from literal to spiritual, earthly to heavenly. God has given the ball to Israel. By the way, uh, at the end of the 70 week prophecy, the disciples should have been watching for the Messiah, Right? And they saw him, they found him, and they knew that it was him. But when Jesus died, what happened? Their hopes were totally shattered. It was as though they didn't even realize that Jesus said, I'm going to die. Guys, I'm going to die. Did you hear that? He said he's going to live. And and when Jesus dies, they experience a great disappointment. Disappointment. They go into hiding. They don't want to see anybody. But then the revelation comes that Jesus has ascended to heaven and is now in a heavenly sanctuary. And you know what the people say? Ha, 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 ha. How convenient. You were saying that Jesus is the Messiah and now he died. So you're just trying to save face. Oh, he entered into a heavenly sanctuary, huh? (laughs) Right. (laughs) I hope you're thinking. (laughs) Does that sound familiar? (laughs) We're going to come back to that. So, notice then, God gives Israel, spiritual Israel, the blueprint. They now have the ball. God says, this gospel shall be what? preached in all the world, and then shall the end come. And so how does the devil counter? Who does he use to try to assault spiritual Israel? Come on. He uses literal Israel. Are you with me? Spiritual Israel is now taking the gospel uh, into all the world. And, and the devil says, now I'm going to use literal Israel to try to stop spiritual Israel. But what happens as is literal Israel tries to stop spiritual Israel? Do they, do they even slow them down? They don't even slow them down. The devil has to go back to his game plan. And he comes back and he says, okay, we're going to use a mightier power. We're going to use literal Rome. Isn't, is that who he used next? And through the emperors, they began killing Christians left and right. But what did did Satan find? That as as these Christians were being killed, uh, uh, it was as though their blood was seed. And he's like, wait a minute. I can't attack a spiritual people who have a spiritual sanctuary. I don't have a physical sanctuary to attack. So he comes up with another plan. And that plan takes us to our second time prophecy in the Bible, which is the time prophecy of the 1260 what? Years. Who knows what happens during the 1260 years? The devil now uses a new power. He's no longer using literal Rome. He is now going to use spiritual Rome. Rome. And notice what spiritual Rome does. Go with me to Daniel chapter 8. Daniel the 8th chapter. And notice with me, Daniel chapter 8, verse 11. The Bible says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifice was taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was what? Cast down. So here's the question, guys. What does the devil do? He uses spiritual Rome to attack what sanctuary? The sanctuary where? In heaven. You say, Pastor, how did he do that? In an amazing way. Are you ready for it? You see our diagram up here? I want you to look at that altar of burnt offering. That altar of burnt offering represents the sacrifice of Christ. You know what? You know how the devil attacked the sanctuary? Here's what he did. The one-time sacrifice of Christ is not sufficient. We have power to sacrifice Christ over and over again in the Eucharist. Are you with me? We have the power. Every time we break this bread, Christ is being called out of heaven and being sacrificed again. His one time sacrifice was not enough. How about the labor? Somebody. Infant baptism. Baptism. You don't need to repent in order to be baptized. Just sprinkle the baby and the baby will be all right. You go up further, the table of showbread, what did the table of showbread represent? The word of God. You know what they said? You can't have a Bible. And if you have a Bible, we're going we're to uh, uh, crucify you. We're going to torture you. And and by the way, the reason why you can't have a Bible is because you're just laity. You can't understand the Bible for yourself. Only the priests can understand the Bible. Uh, You go over to the altar of incense. What does the altar of incense represent? Prayers. You know what they said? You can't pray to God. You've got to pray through saints and through priests. You can't go to God and confess your sins. You've got to come to us. They even set up a counterfeit sanctuary on earth. You see, beloved, when you look at the, the, at the temple, you'll notice that, that the holy place and the most holy place is a two compartment room divided by a curtain. With God on one side and man on the other. they set up a counterfeit called a confessional booth. Two-compartment room with a man sitting in the place of God hearing the confession of sins. The seven-branch candlestick represents letting your light what? Shine. They were intent on putting out the light of the true church of God. And by the way, that represents witnessing. You know, how they, you know how they witnessed? Convert or burn. That was their witnessing. And if you were to go up into the most holy place, what did you have there? You had the, the divine glory of God. They said, hey, God is in the form of a man on earth, the Father a counterfeit father. Are you with me? Not only a counterfeit father, but we're going to go into the foundation of God's throne and we're going to change the Sabbath from the seventh day of the week to the first day of the week. Man, what... You know what? It's as though the church... It's as though the devil intercepted the blueprints and began going down the other... (laughs) Going the opposite direction. And so now, this brings us to our third prophecy. By the way, there is, there is really, you know, the 20... What is our third prophecy? I kind of just said it. What's the third? The 2,300 days. Do you realize that the 70-week prophecy, the 1,260-year prophecy, and the 2,300-day prophecy, they're actually all one prophecy? The 70-week prophecy is simply the first part of the 2300 days. The 1260 describes the devil's counter-attack upon the sanctuary in heaven. What does the 2300-day prophecy state? Unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be what? Cleansed or restored to its rightful place. How many of you get the significance of the 2300-day prophecy? What is God saying? He's saying in 2300 days, the truths that were lost during the 1260 years will be restored. Whew. Okay, now, are you ready? How did God begin to restore these truths? This is, this is absolutely amazing. Well, here we go. In the 1300s, God brought a man on the scene by the name of John Wycliffe. Anybody know what Wycliffe did? He translated the what? The Bible into the language of the common people. Praise God for John Wycliffe. What article of furniture did Wycliffe restore? The table of showbread. Somebody say amen. In the 1400s, there's a man born by the name of Martin Luther. And in 15, I believe it's 15, I don't remember exactly what year it was. Somebody help me out. What year? 15, 1517. Martin Luther begins the Protestant Reformation. He restores the truth that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. His one-time sacrifice is sufficient for salvation. We are saved by faith and not by beating ourselves and doing all the things that the church had said, this is what you need to do to be saved. So John, so Martin Luther, who, by the way, is a founder of what movement? The Lutherans not only builds on the word of God, but restores the altar of sacrifice. In the 1500s, there's another man that comes on the scene by the name of John Calvin, who is the founder of the Presbyterian movement. And Calvin is known as one of the most prolific authors on prayer. You don't need to go to man to confess your sins. You can have direct access to God. Praise God for John Calvin. God was using these individuals to restore truth by truth. So here you have a uh, 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 Wycliffe, the table of showbread, Martin, the altar of sacrifice, a we- uh, um, uh, Wycliffe, the, the, the altar of incense, prayer. In the 1600s, oh boy. In the 1600s, there's a man that comes on the scene by the name of John Smith. John Smith is known as the founder of the Baptist movement. Guess what John Smith restores? John Smith says, wait a minute, you can't sprinkle somebody and they be truly baptized. They've got to be baptized, fully immersed. What article of furniture is restored? In the 1700s. God raises up a man by the name of Wesley of the Methodist movement. And John Wesley is known for his desire to take the gospel into all the world. He begins missionary movements. And guess what? That seven-branch candlestick that had been so long shut out by the church of Rome is now restored. So, uh, do you see what I've been waiting for? Do you see? Can I just get excited up here just for a moment? I, just let me not say anything. Just let's just wallow in the ah, uh. who, who. Can somebody say who with me? Who? Who would God use? What movement would He bring on the scene? What truth was left to be restored? Beloved, let me tell you something. You are not here by coincidence. You're not here by coincidence. Beloved, listen to me. Um, I said it was a drama. I I said, you know, this is reality TV. (laughs) Beloved, listen to me. it's, It's as though... You know, the devil had intercepted the ball and was running down the field, and he was like, yes, we're going to make it. And, and when Wycliffe comes upon the scene, it was like a fumble. Wycliffe took that, took that ball and began to run in the opposite. Can you imagine the angels going, oh! <laughs> and, and just when it seemed like Wycliffe was about to fall, he hands it off to Luther. Oh! And the devil's like, get Luther, get him. Can you imagine him screaming, get him. And Luther hands it off to Calvin. And Calvin hands it off to Smith. And Smith hands it off to Wesley. And beloved, listen, do you, I, I, I don't know if you know something. <laughs> But listen, in 1844, God would bring this movement on the scene. Every movement built on the movement before it. And now, at this last movement, has combined all the truths of the previous movements before it. And again, God says, this gospel... Understand now, beloved, you see, when 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 Jesus left this earth, he said, This gospel shall be preached on all the world. And the, the, the early church took that gospel and they began running, but something happened because that gospel did not get into all the world. The the, the blueprint was intercepted. And so for hundreds of, of, and hundreds of years, it was just one thing being restored at a time, at a time, at a time. But now in 1844, this gospel has been fully restored, and God gives this church the three angels' messages. He says, your job, your mission is to take the ball into the end time, I mean the end zone. Same thing. And, beloved, listen to me. In Revelation chapter 10, the Bible says that an angel is seen standing on the sea and the earth, and he raises his hands to heaven, and he, said he swears that there is time no longer. You and I understand that to mean prophetic time. After the 2300-day prophecy, there is no more time prophecy. You know what that means? Beloved, there is no time left on the clock. There is no other church in case we fumble. I want you to understand how much is at stake. The angels are on their feet. Because the clock has run out of prophetic time. There is no fumbling now. There is no second church, no other people to come up on the scene. This is it. What are you doing with your life? And so God's last day people have this ball, this blueprint, and now their mission is to take this gospel into all the world. You have the first angel's message, calling a people back to to, to worshiping God and to honoring his, his law. You have the second angel's message, which begins to reveal all the errors that have come into the church through Babylon. And then you have that third angel's message that says, if any man worship the beast and his image, he will perish. Beloved, the three angels' messages is designed to to, to reach into all the world with one simple point. You see, beloved, listen, the Adventist message is the very same message as the message of Noah. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. What was Noah's message? Get in the ark. I don't care if they didn't get it Yes (laughs) Get in the ark This is the message Get in the ark Before it is too late Why? Listen beloved I want you to go with me quickly To Revelation chapter 15 Revelation chapter 15 Believe it or not We're almost finished We have almost juiced This is good juice, man. Good juice. Revelation chapter 15. (laughs) Revelation 15. Listen to this. Revelation 15, verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, a great and marvelous seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them is filled up with the wrath of God. So what do you have here? After the three angels' messages, what comes next? The seven last plagues. Okay, now have any of you ever noticed where the how many angels are carrying these plagues? Seven angels. And has anyone ever noticed where these angels come from? Look with me in verse five and six. And after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. Where is that? Where is the, what is the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony? Where was the testimony found? In the where? Most holy place. So get it, beloved. Here John sees the most holy place, and then guess who he sees coming out of it? Listen, verse 7. And the seven angels came out of the temple. Where were they coming out of? They were coming out of the most holy place. Why? Could it be? that those who receive the plagues are those who refused to keep the law which was found in the ark. Could it be that the plagues fall on those who were not found in the ark of safety? Can I tell you why I know that is so? Go with me to Psalm 91. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Notice what the Bible says here. Psalm 91. He that dwelleth He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the hour that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, and ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked. Because thou hast made the Lord which is my refuge, even the most high of thy habitation, there shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any. Jesus comes. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Who is he coming for? He's coming for his jury. Remember, 1844 began jury selection. That's what 1844 was, jury selection. Who will be found worthy to enter the Supreme Court of Heaven to sit on the jury? So Jesus comes back and he gathers his saints and the Bible says that judgment was given unto them. This is when we judge the world and angels. The wicked are dead upon the earth, the righteous are in heaven, and we are doing what during the 1,000 years? We're doing jury duty. Are you with me? And now, beloved, we get to the end of the millennium, and you know what happens, right? We come down, the wicked are resurrected, and then you didn't know this. But at that moment, when the wicked are resurrected and they see the city of God and they try to, uh, 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 they go up to try to take the city and then the, the throne of God appears and they freeze in their tracks, do you know what the world turns into at that moment? It turns into the largest movie theater this world has ever seen. I want to read it to you from the writings of Ellen White and we'll close. As soon as the books of record are opened and the eyes of Jesus look upon the wicked, they are conscious of every sin which they have ever committed They see just where their feet diverge from the path of purity and holiness, just how far pride and rebellion have carried them in the violation of the law of God. The seductive temptations which they encouraged by indulgence in sin, the blessings perverted, the messengers of God despised, the warnings rejected, the waves of mercy beaten back by the stubborn, unrepentant heart, all appear as if it were written in letters of fire. Above the throne is revealed the cross and like a panoramic view appear the scenes of Adam's temptation and fall. Do you understand what I just read? The entire world will be, as it were, at the largest movie theater ever. And look at what God begins to unfold. The scenes of Adam's temptation and fall the successive steps in the great plan of redemption, the Savior's lowly birth, his early life of simplicity and obedience, his baptism in the Jordan, the fast and the temptation in the wilderness, his public ministry unfolding to heaven's most precious blessings, unfolding to men heaven's most precious blessings, the days crowded with deeds of love and mercy, the nights of prayer and watching in the solitude of the mountains, the plottings of envy, hate, and malice, which repaid his benefit, The awful, mysterious agony in Gethsemane, beneath the crushing weight of the sins of the whole world, his betrayal into the hands of the murderous mob, the fearful events of that night of horror, the unresisting prisoner, forsaken by his best-loved disciples, rudely hurried through the streets of Jerusalem, the Son of God exultingly displayed before Annas, arraigned in the high priest's palace, in the judgment hall of Pilate, Before the the cowardly and cruel Herod, mocked, insulted, tortured, condemned to die, all are vividly portrayed. Nobody can turn away from the scene. And now before the swaying multitude are revealed, the final scenes. The patient sufferer treading the path to Calvary, the prince of heaven hanging on the cross, the haughty priest and the jeering rabble deriding his expiring agony, the supernatural darkness, the heaving earth, the rent rocks, the open graves, marking the moment when the world's redeemer yielded up his life. The awful spectacle appears just as it was. Satan and his angels and his subjects have no power to turn from the picture of their own work. Each actor recalls the part which he performed. What part are you performing? Did you know that you were an actor? Did you know that there's a camera rolling? Reality? TV? Beloved, I don't want the wicked to look up at me with the look in their eyes saying, wait a minute, you saw this movie and you didn't tell me about it? You told me about all the movies that were coming out in Hollywood. You the one that invited me to... To see the 18. You didn't tell me about this movie and you saw the preview? Beloved, do you want the wicked saying that to you? In fact, they might be saying that like to you. I mean, they might not be looking at you in the city, they might be like looking at you like, what? You have me out here? What? (laughs) Beloved, do you want the wicked saying to you, why didn't you tell me? This was the most important movie of all existence and you didn't tell me. Beloved, you've seen the picture. What role will you play? What role will you play? Heavenly Father, we have juiced the Bible. We have seen the big picture. Lord, you have told us through your prophet that in these days, we will need to understand the truth in a shorter time, simply because the time is short. Father, we are living in a time where there is no more time on the prophetic clock. Angels are on their feet, watching to see the ending of this final run. Lord, let us be faithful. Forgive us for the parts we have played in drawing people away from your kingdom. Lord, seal this vision in our minds that we may share it with zeal with those around us. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded and produced by Power of the Lamb Ministries. Our mission is to help prepare God's people for the soon coming of Jesus Christ by pointing to the supernatural power of the Lamb of God that gives us the experience of victorious Christian living. For more information on our multimedia resources or inquiries on speaking engagements, please log on to our website at www.powerofthelamb.com. That's www.powerofthelamb.com Thank you and God bless.